Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you'd like more information on Team Rhino Outdoors, visit www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. My co-hosts tonight are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. You can find more about Muskie Mayhem Tackle by visiting www.muskiemayhemtackle.com. And our guest tonight is Jordan Weeks with the Wisconsin DNR. Thank you for coming out tonight, Jordan. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. And Carrie. You're being politically correct already, Jordan. Right. First first time for anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's my life. That's where I live. So it's it's no change for me. You don't have to be politically correct for me, though. But I'm kind of uncorrect. I'm, that's what I'm used to. Well, I'll have to work at it, but I'll see if we can make it happen during this uh, podcast. <laughs> so I just want to give the listeners a little update. If you listen to our last podcast, um, I was going to have to go chase a pontoon boat down in the middle of Pelican Lake. Turns out it wasn't the dock that we keep our pontoon boat on. It was the dock next to us. So we were fine there. Thought I dodged a bullet on Saturday morning. About 11.30 Saturday afternoon, or Saturday morning, almost noon, storm rolls through, takes the Team Rhino Outdoors trailer, throws it 20 yards into the, uh, 20 feet into the into the farmer's field. <laughs> so looking for a new trailer for, for show season. So fortunately, we got about six months to go or so. I think that's about right, isn't it? Six? Yeah. Anyways, so uh, if you listened to the last podcast and you were wondering what happened, pontoon's fine, TRO trailer, not so fine. <laughs> But uh, I'd like to talk a little more about this pontoon you got. Do you want to talk about it? It's really not that special. Well, I mean, it, it takes a special man to admit he's got a pontoon. Well, you know, I got, ki- I, got <laughs> <laughs> well, I got kids and, you know, they want to go out and swim and stuff like that. It's a lot easier to do that than it is in my other boats. So that's why we have a pontoon. You know, you got to try to keep. Fair you know, enough. Fair enough. Gotta try- I had forgotten you had a fleet. Yes. I have a fleet of boats. I, well, yeah, I got a pontoon, which you got to have. Then I have a toughy 1760 fiberglass boat so if i ever do go on green bay i can use that and then i have a little lund i don't know whatever it is uh 1625 i don't remember fish hawk type type thing just aluminum boat but it's actually pretty decent and um so i use that for up north because you know it is i mean you being from the wisconsin dnr you know that wisconsin has all sorts of different bodies of water that you can explore yeah how's that jet boat coming along it's not yet I, oh. uh, I just, like, I wanted to pull the plug early, and when I didn't pull the plug on it early, then I f- got part of the way into the season, and I'm like, I'm not going to use this thing enough. I had all my, tr- I had a bunch of trips planned, so it's on the shelf for at least another few months, but it's it's still very much in the works. Don't get me wrong. This jet boat thing is going to have to happen. Hey, uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, rushing, making sure you get one any too quickly because that just keeps you off my water. So <laughs> I probably won't be on your side of the state anyways. <laughs> I'm all over the state. What what part of the state are you from, Jordan? Uh, well, that, that's an interesting question, Brad. I'm where I'm from is near Madison. I grew up and went to high school in Stoughton, Wisconsin, which is about 15 miles south of Madison. Um, once I graduated though, I left for the Northern part of the state for about 15 years and then ended up in lacrosse. Okay. Very good. Um, you probably know some COs down there, I'm assuming. Um, and I'm going to mess out on the name, but Billy Beekner's brother-in-law is named Dale and last name I'm going to struggle, but he's a CO down in lacrosse, I believe. Yeah, that would probably be Dale Holkhausen. 
there you go. That's him. Yep. Yeah, he works at, he works in my former county's inland and works with me on the Mississippi River, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Dale's a super cool guy. I've, I've met him a few times and uh so we know we have some common ground. Yeah, absolutely. You'll have to ask him about the Lake on Alaska bluegill uh bust he had a, a year ago or so. Oh, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. I, I can about imagine. Well, since we kind of touched on his background a little bit, where he's where he's from, Jordan, let's talk about musky fishing and what got what you first. Let's get, talk about what got you into musky fishing. But let's first find out: Did muskies come before the job with the DNR, or when you you know you were so passionate about muskies and fishing that you had to get into fisheries? Which which came first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, that's that's a that's a great question, Jeff. You know, it's it's interesting. When I was a kid. Growing up in Stoughton, my dad would reward me for good grades by taking me fishing in the morning. And we used to fish for bass on Lower Mud Lake and the Hare River just upstream from Lake Eganza. And I, as a youth growing up, I could never figure out why there was a closed season. Um, I guess I understood that there was a part where, you know, they didn't want you to harvest at certain parts of the year. But I was like, you know, 12 years old. I couldn't figure out why. You know, I couldn't go out and catch and release fish. I didn't want to keep anything. And at that time, BASS was kind of in its infancy, you know, starting up on these big tournaments. And I was super interested. And all I wanted to do was fish bass. Well, I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't go fishing for them and let them go. And so much so that I actually called the DNR a few times and just asked them, well, can I really go fishing? And they kept telling me, no, you can't even go fishing for bass. And so that was probably the start of, of what, of when I wanted to be in fisheries. I was like, well, that rule doesn't really make any sense because I'm not going to hurt anything by going and catch and releasing these fish. So, yeah. So, you know, at age, you know, 12, 13, 14, I'm like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to work in that and make, you know, change some of those rules. And, and as time went on, uh, I graduated high school. Um, actually let me back up. When I was 16 or so, um, my grandma was living on the Holcomb Flowage, and a buddy of mine, Steve Lund, and I would go up and spend a week. We'd commandeer my dad's boat, and it was a 14-foot Alumacraft at the time, and we'd commandeer it for a week, and we fished the Holcomb Flowage. Well, inevitably, we started catching muskies, fishing for this these bass and pike that we were trying to catch for or fish for, and uh, that kind of once I started catching those muskies, you know, unintentionally, I kind of something switched in my head and said, you know, this is the thing that I want to catch. I don't really care about those other things anymore. So by the time I was 17, I was fully, um, fully immersed in this, this muskie game, trying to, trying to chase those. Um, subsequent to that, I started going to Stevens point after I graduated high school, um, for fisheries. I knew, I knew for a long time that I wanted to go into fisheries. So from there, it was kind of a, I guess the muskie came first, I guess, to answer your question directly. Well, the one thing that you haven't said, Jordan, is what your actual position is today. <laughs> sure. Um, right now, I am a uh, fish team supervisor on the Mississippi River. So I supervise a team of four biologists and three technicians on 234 miles of the Mississippi River. That's all the Mississippi River that borders um, Minnesota. Iowa and Illinois. Okay. I'm also in the muskie realm. I'm the statewide muskie team leader. We have a team of biologists from around the state 
along with uh, Conservation Congress, uh, tribal members. It's it's a policy team that that deals with muskie policy. I'm the leader for that. I'm also the um, Wisconsin representative for the American Fisheries Society North Central District of the Socket Technical Committee. Now I know that's a mouthful, but it's a bunch of dudes from a bunch of states, mostly guys anyway. There's a few females. Um, we talk about muskies in the, basically the Midwest. So that's where I come in with the muskie part of it. I've been on the muskie team for my entire permanent employment with the department. That was starting in 2005. Uh, before that, I was on the team as a limited term employee. Um, I was kind of an adjunct member. Interesting stuff. Um, so the Mississippi sections that you're dealing with, are you seeing muskies in any of that at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, I wouldn't call it a fishable population by any means, but um, the St. Croix flowing in through, um, you know, the Hudson area into the Mississippi's got fish in it. Right. We all know about that. Um, the Apple River's got them. The Chippewa River's got them. The Black River's got them. Um, the La Crosse River's got them. The Wisconsin River's got them. So all the tributaries on the Wisconsin side going, almost all of them going into the to the Mississippi have muskies. So we, we do see them on occasion and we have people catch them on occasion. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let some folks know when it's, I think it's a fishable population. Cause I fully expect these bass tournament guys to, uh, let me know when they start catching them. You know what I mean? For sure. That, that'll be really intriguing and interesting. Um, I mean, those fish have been in some of that section of the river for a long, a long period of time. So, you would have to suspect that it's going to continue to go a little bit south there. For sure. There's a, there's continues to be fish. The, you know, the biggest tributaries are the ones with the most, the Wisconsin has a bunch of fish. The chip has a bunch of fish. Um, the St. Croix has a bunch of fish. Um, Lake Pepin, the Minnesota DNR does a annual survey out there. Um, they do different surveys than we do and they actually catch a few. Um, I think the most they said they caught one year was 17 which seems like a lot, but Lake Pepin is 25,000 acres. So 17 muskies and 25,000 acres is not a lot. Um, they, they average about four in their surveys on Pep, on Lake Pepin. So you know, like I said, it's not necessarily a fishable population right now. However, the habitat is ideal for muskies and the forage is um, incredible. So if they ever get there, and they get there in a fishable population, they are going to be substantial beasts. Cool. So, Jordan, since you're dealing with multiple states and some of those groups that you're in, how about the anti-musky groups? Do you get to discuss that that fun stuff, too, that we deal with? Um, not not as much as the Minnesota folks get to deal with. It seems like they have a really delightful group that, that uh, they're, you're dealing with at this point. Um, I do not envy that position at all. It seems like Wisconsin went through that fight, you know, a bunch of years ago, um, even before, way before my time with the department, you know, that big anti, anti musky groups. But um, I don't really interact with too many folks uh, that are anti musky. The one, the one instance that I have is in 2006, a year after I started in lacrosse, I was actually a biologist. So, um, I was working on four counties, La Crosse, Monroe, Vernon, and Crawford, and there's an impoundment, 730-acre impoundment um, near near La Crosse that we wanted to stock muskies in, and I did have to address that issue with the locals. Uh, a lot of the locals were the, you know, the typical, hey, they're going to eat all my, and then insert, 
whatever species is most important to you. Um, but you know, I, I basically stuck to the science and really in, in my, where I live in my world, um, that's where I have to live because as soon as I take that science hat off, I become, uh, someone with no credibility. So I, I would totally agree with that. And then the battles that I've dealt with, um, originally starting here in Minnesota with no more muskies, um, the, the big thing that basically would put all of that into a stalemate or, you know, kind of wash it under the rug, if you will, um, was the facts. And we would have some of our bi biologists locally here speak those facts. And uh, you're right. The credibility is what shuts all of that noise down. Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, is no matter how many studies we do or what information there is, there's going to be certain folks that that don't believe it. You know, and, and muskies have never been detrimental to any other fish in any water they've ever been put in, even when they've been put there to do that specifically. So, like, certain lakes have been stocked with tiger muskies because, hey, we want to get rid of bullheads or whatever. It never works. So, <laughs> even when a department or a group is trying to use muskies as a predator fish to impact another population... Um, to my knowledge, there hasn't ever been an, a successful, um, you know, example of that. Hmm. That's, that's super interesting. I, I mean, you hear about it all the time. The, Especially the, out west. Yeah, those types of programs, I think, you know, the invasive species of uh, a certain body of water, you know, your hopes are that you put a large predator in there and it cleans it up. But I, I find that interesting that you said it's never really worked the way that it's proposed to, you know, I've never seen a published study that says it's worked. So I'm not saying it, it's impossible to, you know, it hasn't happened, but I haven't seen any published work and I look all the time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, muskies are indiscriminate, right? They're going to eat whatever's easiest. And, you know, you can't program them to eat one thing. Yeah. You got to genetically program these fish. You know, if we could do that, we'd just genetically program to all be females. So <laughs> I think uh, I'd like you to uh, genetically program to eat double cowgirls. How does that sound? I think you've already done that. You and Carrie have accomplished <laughs> that um, from from my experience, sir. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, good stuff. Well, it's hard to argue with with those with those things, man. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, so what are some of the other studies that you're currently involved in? Uh, well, I'm not intimately involved in doing research at this point. Um, I'm more of the, you know, on the muskie team, I'm more of the administrative level, not, you know, than into the actual research. But there's a quite a bit of really neat research going on. Um, you know, there, there's always hot topic issues that we're looking at. One that, that the muskie team is, is thinking about doing is escapement through some of our dams. Um, we have, we have a lot of reservoirs in Wisconsin and most of them have muskies in them. And what we'd like to figure out is if a certain type of dam structure passes fish more readily than others. Um, and if that's the case, are we stocking the appropriate number of fish above and below that structure? Um, you know, that's just one of the, the studies that we're looking at. Um, we talked at, I just had a ESACA technical committee meeting. I mentioned that before. Um, I was just out in South Dakota last week at that and, uh, nu numerous states are interested in looking at a hot water hooking mortality study. 
Um, that's always a hot topic this time of year when it gets warm. Um, so that'll be really powerful if we can get, you know, some of the Southern states to partake in it. I'll have the same study designed and then move forward with that. Um, unfortunately, this, these type of studies, um, the funding for these studies is kind of in question. We need to figure out where we're going to get the money to do this stuff, but there's a lot, there's a lot of really neat stuff that's going on. Um, spawning success, spawning habitat. There's a grad student that's working on, uh, Green Bay right now. He's continuing, continuing Robert Sheffer's work. Robert was looking at uh, movement in the Bay and also habitat preferences, spawning locations. Uh, this new student is going to look at actual spawning substrate, and I'm not sure if he's going to get into hatching success or not. Um, we have found a very small number of naturally produced muskies in Green Bay, uh, but it's not enough to, to stop stocking, of course. But yeah, there's countless research projects going on. Very interesting. I, I'm curious how you, you know, as a team or whatever, arrive at what those numbers should be for stocking. Oh, that's a that's an interesting question. I'm going to try to give you the Cliff Notes version because it's been kind of developed over many many years of of trial and error. So, um, I guess the the baseline is how many fish can our hatcheries produce, right? So it's okay. it's not it's not an unlimited amount. And that, uh, that number of fish is dictated by the availability of ponds. Right now, Wisconsin has a walleye initiative that was put um, by the, the last governor. He put in law into law. So we have to raise um, a certain number of walleyes every year, which takes up a bunch of room in our hatcheries for muskies. Um, I don't recall the exact number of walleyes that we have to raise, um, but it has, you know, decreased the number of muskies that are hatcheries. Um, can raise and and I am a little bit of a homer in this in this sense in that our hatcheries in Wisconsin can really make they can really produce some awesome fish. Um, they have the capacity to easily produce 100,000 muskies a year, and between basically three hatcheries, so it's it's incredible. Um, but you know it's now without trade-offs for other species. How close how close to capacity are we running on that 100,000? You said we have the potential to do it. I mean, is that typically about what we do? No, not in the past few years, since, especially since the walleye initiative went in. Um, prior to that, we were getting closer. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I want to say the Governor Thompson hatchery, that's the Chippewa River drainage fish. So that's on the western northwestern part of the state. I think they did close to 40,000 fish last year. Um, Art Emke did less than that, but not... A ton less and that's the one in woodruff so that's the northeastern wisconsin stock um, and then our third hatchery that does muskies is wild rose and they deal with a lot of the green bay fish and the fish in the southern half of the state that are there aren't they don't have to be from either drainage so wisconsin is interesting in that we have the north the northern about half of the state is considered the native range of muskies and through our genetics management plan which has been developed now for the past almost 20 years um, we keep Chippewa River fish in the Chippewa River drainage and Wisconsin River fish in the Wisconsin River drainage. Once you get into the southern Wisconsin outside the native range, we can stock whatever. Um, and then Green Bay obviously is Green Bay fish. However, we're trying to always bolster the genetic out there as well. Um, kind of getting on that same subject. So there, I'm trying to think how long ago it was, maybe four or five years ago, there was there was obviously some year classes that are missing in stocking with Green Bay. 
Um, we could touch on that a little bit, but, um, so in order to bolster that, to make sure there was constant stock of fish for green Bay, just in case something happened, I think outside of wild rose, they developed, was it three broodstock lakes, Anderson, Elkhart, and one other one. I'm sure you probably know how, how, just to give an update, how close are those fish that were stocked in there to being mature? Is that thing any close to being a success or not? Yeah. So I guess let's put that into context a little bit. So the original fish that got stocked into green Bay way back when, when we started to rehabilitate the population were basically, um, a, a couple of brothers and sisters. So the genetic diversity of those fish is very, very low. Um, which is why we don't continue to just use fish out of the Fox river every spring. We can catch plenty of fish and get plenty of eggs to, to produce as many fish as we need for green Bay. However, the genetic diversity isn't what we wanted. So then we started teaming up with, um, we, we worked with Canada for a while to get some fish from them. We worked with, uh, folks in Michigan to get fish from St. Clair the last five years. And then we're working on entering into another five-year um, agreement with, with Michigan to get St. Clair genetics um, for those three brood lakes that you mentioned. Um, so those brood lakes, we don't have enough adults right now to use them. But that I'm not really worried about that because that's a, a backup plan for the future, right? We want to get these broodstock lakes going so we have enough adults to use different females every year and provide excellent genetics to green Bay with the hope that someday we don't have to stock the Bay. Now that is probably way down the road and might be unrealistic, but that's our goal, right? When this program started in green Bay, it was a rehabilitation program for a species of fish that had been extirpated by basically commercial fishing and other aspects. So we're trying to rehabilitate that population by stocking fish into green Bay that will reproduce on their own. So we don't have to continue to do it. That makes sense. How much natural reproduction is currently happening out there? I mean, like four fish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, like we can't possibly measure all the areas that they could spawn in. But I think in the last, this is all just out of memory. I'd have the numbers at work, but um, one fish a year we're finding, we've kind of found like two or three in the Menominee river and maybe one or, or maybe two outside of there. Um, those would be young a year that we'd find in the fall that were spawned that spring. and didn't have a fin clip or a pit tag. Sure. So that would be a minimum number. Obviously, like I said, we can't get to all the areas. There could be more. Um, but you know, <laughs> you're going to need a lot more than that to have a fishable population in green Bay, um, to make it worth anybody's while. Right. Uh, our, our broodstock lakes, they, sh- we were hoping that we'll come online with females that are mature, um, in the next two years in those broodstock lakes. And then we should be able to start taking eggs. Um, however, what we don't know is the maturity schedule of the fish from Lake St. Clair. So I'll give you a basic, it's just like a, Cliff notes version again, I'm going to hit that word a lot because it's, I can't go into detail on all this stuff, but so muskies inland Wisconsin typically mature at age three to three to six. So the males and the females, by the time they're six, hundred percent of them usually are mature. The later a fish matures, the larger it gets before it matures and the, and the bigger it'll get at the end of the day, because once a fish matures, it slows its growth down tremendously. 
and it, because it has to put all a lot of energy into creating eggs and milt. So if a fish matures later in life, theoretically, it can grow to a larger size. So if the fish from Lake St. Clair mature at age, all the females are matured at age eight instead of six, that means something for our broodstock lakes as opposed to if they mature at age five. So that's the question we don't have right now. In our waters, when are those fish going to mature so we can start taking eggs? We don't know that yet. That's, that's interesting that it varies that much, actually. Well, it can. It can vary by latitude. It can vary by, you know, geographic area. It can vary by watershed. So, yeah, th there's no – that's why I gave you a range. That makes sense. Um, one of the things that you brought up was pit tags. Um, two questions with pit tags. Number one, can you tell the listeners exactly how a pit tag works? Um, and number two, the question would be, how many of the stock fish that you're putting into these different systems uh, actually are carrying a pit tag? Oh, pit tags are one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I think they're one of the, the biggest uh, breakthroughs as far as musky management goes. And into the next 10 years, it's going to be some of the most important information we can get from muskies will, be, will come from pit tag muskies. So pit tags are a, uh, it's about two grains of rice is about how big they are. It's got a mag. It's got a magnet in it that has a number associated with it. Um, so it doesn't have an electrical charge at all. It's good forever. That number is activated by another magnet running over the top. So there's two components of a pit tag. There's the actual tag, which is a really small thing. It's exactly the same as they would put in your dog, in case it got lost. You know, they can scan behind the nape of the neck and find out whose dog it is. It's the exact same technology. It just goes into fish. Um, so you need a needle to put it in. Super easy. I've trained hundreds of musky anglers to do this. Um, I have several uh, annually that come back for tags and tag fish for me in certain bodies of water. Um, Wisconsin, the musky team has, has um, decided that every adult musky that we handle in the state gets a pit tag annually. So um, we started that about four years ago. And so anywhere from, I don't really know the exact number get, get handled every year, but you know, thousands of muskies get handled in Wisconsin. They all should have a pit tag in them. Um, the reader is the other component of the system and they range in price from about 150 bucks, which I found a vendor in Sweden that can get them for that price. Um, they don't or they don't uh, record the number and they're not waterproof, but you can make them waterproof with a Ziploc bag. That's the one I usually uh, recommend musky anglers get because it's not as expensive. Um, some of the other ones record numbers and are waterproof. Those are made by Biomark. Um, that's a company in the United States that, that makes them. They're about 600 bucks. So, you know, if I'm thinking about buying one personally, I'm not buying a $600 one. Um, they do the same thing. But anyway, so every muskie that we handle by the department gets a pit tag. A lot of the muskies um, that we stock in specific lakes all get pit tags, especially if they're large enough. So if we have a question about natural reproduction and we want to know um, what percentage of fish come from stocked um, product or natural product, we pit tag all of our stocked fish and then find out when we do surveys how many are natural versus stocked. So it's a super powerful tool. They stay in the fish about 98% of the time and they never fail.
That's uh, that's good stuff. I know um, there's some of that stuff going on here in Minnesota as well, and a lot of anglers are are uh, also carrying that reader so that they can get that information. So, Wisconsin, what do, what do they expect from the angler if the angler does get that information? Um, how do they share it, and and where that information goes from there? Yeah, so like the group of guys that that I have working with me, I'll have my contact information. They have my personal cell phone as well as my work stuff. Um, I've trained them on how to put these tags in and and you know when to do it and where to do it on a fish. If they get a recapture, um, I get many many messages every summer about hey, here's the number. They usually just take a picture with their smartphone of the tag number on the reader and say hey, I got a recap. Tell me about it. So then I can go into our database. We have a statewide database in Wisconsin that all our pit tags are logged in. And as long as it wasn't tagged this year, if it was tagged in a previous year, I can get them recapture, recapture information of, from that. Um, there aren't so many pit tag readers out there right now that we can't kind of keep tabs on who has them. So the guys in Wisconsin that have them know what the deal is. So they all know who to contact and how to get the information. Um, Steve Jensen's got one and I believe he even tags fish up by Hayward, but there's, there's a number of guys that I know that, that are doing it as well. Um, it's a great program. It really gets buy-in by the angler and the stories that we see from these fish are, are really incredible. Um, what I found most interesting about it is like, you'll have a fish that is, um, caught at, you know, a certain length in the spring and then caught again in the fall. Um, and it might grow four inches, which is incredible. And then the next fish you look at, it might grow one inch in seven years. It's, it's really crazy. And, and really the, the thing that I can equate it to the best is the fish seem to be like people, you know, some of us are really tall and thin. Some of us are, are short and stout, you know, some of us are, are big and, and round, you know? And it seems like these fish are growing. The more recaptures we get, we can we can see that these fish, each one of them, grow a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I guess I would relate it that way too. I mean, it, I think you hit it on the head. Um, genetics and and so many different factors on what makes a fish grow faster, the way they're built and they're structured. But I think that's interesting. Are you looking for more people um, to to start getting these pit um, the readers? Um, I'm not actively soliciting folks, you know, to, to come and join this fight because it does, there is a level of trust that has to go on here. And it's not like, and it, actually in Wisconsin, we have state law that says like, you know, not everyone can just go tag fish. So it's actually illegal for most people to tag fish. They have to be covered under what we call a scientific collector's permit. So all of the folks that work with me are under a scientific collector's permit issued by the department to do that work. And they're all trained, you know, by a biologist. So if it's not myself, it's Max Walter and Hayward or, or one of the other bio biologists that has a group of guys that are helping them out. Um, now to read the tags and not insert tags, any person in the state can read the tags. So if folks want to get a pit tag reader and just look for recaptured fish and not actually tag fish, that that is something that they could get a hold of me at some point and I could give them information on how to buy that tag reader and then you know clue them in on how to get the information to the appropriate person yeah that makes perfect sense um, right so we don't want people out there willy-nilly tagging fish all over the place right 
I'm surprised you even let Steve Jensen and Pete Rich tag fish. I mean, you got to be pretty trustworthy in order to let them do that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of coercing in that. There was a lot of training. You know, most people do about five minutes of training. Those two, let's just say, it was a little bit longer, like forty hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not at liberty to discuss. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I, I'm interested too, Jordan. Um, how many of these fish is the DNR reclaiming, like, say, in a hoop net study for uh, population and, and such? What's the percentage of uh, reclaimed fish, if you will, that you're getting in your netting surveys? Is there a, a certain percentage? Oh, Brad, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, um, I didn't expect you to give me, like, you know, it's 3.7%, you know? But I, no... I don't even think I can give you an accurate guess. You know, it varies from year to year and it also varies by water body. Um, you know, if you have a tiny lake, that's a circle, you know, they can't really get away from you. But if they're, if they're in a, in a flowage like Holcomb or the chip of flowage, you know, God forbid the chip of flowage, you start trying to catch them in there with all the inlets and the rivers coming in. And it's, it's really hard to get a high percentage of recaptured fish. Um, but we are using these this pit tag technology for population estimates in the northern third of the state um, for their treaty work. So we have to get a certain amount of confidence in that in, in that number in the estimate in order for it to be used up there. So they are getting they are getting a fair amount. Like you know, a, we look for ten percent recaptures at a minimum, depending on the the water the water body. Um, some lakes you tend to get more than others and some years you tend to get more than others. I can understand that. I mean, it's, weather, weather plays such a key factor. And generally speaking, how long will you have a netting survey, uh, take place on a, a specific body of water? Sure. In Wisconsin, when we do a population estimate, it's actually a two year effort. And so the first year we'll go out during the spawning period, which typically is, a week or two after ice out, um, mean spawning temperature or average spawning temperature about 55. If I really want to catch a bunch of muskies, I'll wait till it gets to about 50 and put nets in at 50 and run them till it's 60. Um, ideally, you want that warm up to be really gradual, and then you get the most fish. Um, the other thing that that I like to do is is halfway through, I like to move my nets about 100 yards on the shoreline because muskies tend to be um, sort of trap wary. Once you catch a few in a net, if you move it 100 yards, you most oftentimes will catch a few more that are avoiding that area, whether or not they don't like the net or, or they're just spawning in a little more discreet area. Um, I find that that happens a lot. The other part of our population estimate is the second year. So we'll net for a couple of weeks the first year, mark all the fish, come back the second year, do it at the same time period, um, same water temperatures, and then a portion of the fish will be new and a portion will be captures from the previous year from that we can get an estimate of the population um to this point our our accepted population estimates are our net net so we use a trap net the first year and a trap yet net the following year um mostly because a lot of our waters are dark um in minnesota they do a lot of electrofishing for musky population estimates um there they do kind of a, a seek and destroy technique um at least on certain waters where it's really clear, they actually drive around with a spotlight at night and they'll shine the fish and then they'll drive over to it with the boat and turn on the electricity and then stun the fish and, and then they can capture them. 
Um, muskies don't electrofish very well, so we can't, we usually don't get a lot of them when we go out on our shocking surveys. Um, the main reason for that is because their lateral line is so long. The length of their body is their, this, this, um, it's a, it's their sense of feel. It's a series of liquid filled tubes that run from the outside of the fish into their spinal column directly. And so they can actually feel another fish swimming by them as how sensitive it is. So you imagine if we come cruising along with a big electrical field that they feel that coming and they usually get out of the way before we can catch them. So, um, we use net net. Uh, it's not right or wrong. It's just what we choose to do in Wisconsin and we get some pretty valid estimates. Did any of that make sense? Yeah, all of it. All of it. All of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I Good. My wheels are spinning. Uh, oh, okay. It was just silence for a second. I didn't know if I lost you guys. I was trying to do an invite back to the, the host of this show, and um, I don't know if he fell asleep over there again or what. No, I'm fine. I'm right here listening. <laughs> I was actually texting with Carrie a little bit. Hey, you know, uh, another question that I might, uh, I think maybe the listeners might uh, find interesting is, is where is the general lo- location of that pit tag usually? And I think I know the answer to it, but just in case some people out there don't know um, where that pit tag is normally placed. Oh, that's a loaded question too, because we've got it in about, let's see, four different locations in fishing Wisconsin. Um, and, it, and they're all there for different reasons. So when I initially started my pit tag program in 2006 on the, my little lake down here, I call it my lake. It's obviously not my lake, but uh, on the little lake down here that I worked on, um, we started putting them in the cheek. And the reason that's the cheek meat, like if you hit, uh, you catch a walleye and you want to eat walleye cheeks, there's that piece of meat right on the opercle. Um, you can put a pit tag in there and it stays really well. Um, we put it there because if someone did harvest the fish, we didn't want it in the normal flesh. So we didn't want someone to eat one. Um, it's also been put in the left cheek. So we've had them in both sides of the fish's head. Um, that tag retention is about 97%. Um, they're sometimes put right near the dorsal fin, right under the skin in the dorsal muscle. That's tag retention is about 98 or 99%. So they stay almost every time. However, some of us don't put them there because we have tribal harvest and we have some angler harvest. And like I said before, we don't want anyone to bite down on one of those things. Um, that could be bad. And then there's also been some placed in the abdomen. Um, and what we've found over time in Wisconsin, at least is most of the time that abdomen placement was used for juvenile fish, uh, year, uh, fish that are stocked in the fall. Um, and what we found is sometimes they get into the stomach cavity. Sometimes they get into the digestive tract and sometimes they're expelled. Interesting. So, I mean, for the average Joe, that's going to go buy a reader. Um, you got to kind of be in tune with uh, where you need to. I mean, how how close does the reader need to be to that tag to actually get an accurate number? Uh, a few inches. Um, the more expensive the reader, the the more distance you typically get. Um, but when I when I train someone to to look for tags, what I do is I say, hey, you just rub this this reader along both sides of the head, down the back, and down the belly, and literally it takes. 10 seconds. Um, if you do it twice, it's 20 seconds. And for most of the folks, I tell them to do it right in the net. 
So the fish isn't out of the water when you're doing it. You can put your, you know, reader in a Ziploc bag and scan them right in the water. And if it beeps, I scan them again. I take a picture. I make it, you know, if it beeps, I do it two or three times to make sure I have the right, the right number. And it's the same number every time. Um, there are instances when fish have two pit tags. Um, it's relatively rare, but it can happen. Um, it, it's really easy to do. Um, I'd like to say I could teach anybody to do it, but I think that I might be, uh, you know, giving people too much credit. And you don't want to push the envelope. For somebody that wants to see a video of it, um, Steve and I shot a video last year for YouTube. I think it was called like Revenge or something like that. We got a tiger muskie with a pit tag in it, and Steve went through the process of tagging it, and he went through the process of reading it or or checking it for a for one because it didn't have one, so we had to tag it. So if anybody cares, they can check back on our YouTube channel. I think the video is called Revenge. It was like our first one from last season, so it's probably a, whatever a year and a month or two old. Um, they can check it out there. Yeah, very cool. I got a couple of videos too that I'll be putting on my my YouTube channel. I'm not, I don't want to compete with yours, but um, I have a instructional video that I give to all the folks that want to do this, um, just to outline the process. So, and that YouTube channel is uh, Biological Angler Productions. I knew it. I just wanted to help you out. I watch it. I think I subscribe. Thanks a lot. You're like one of nine, nine or something like that. Of course. But, uh, yeah. I don't work too hard on it at this point, but it's cause it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so it's interesting as I'm sitting here talking, my wife walks over, my wife, Sarah walks over and says, uh, I have a question for you. She says, how do you figure out pit tag retention? And that's a great question, wife. Uh, <laughs> so the way we figure that out is when we put tags in these fish, we'll actually clip a fin off too. And then when we catch a fish that has a fin clip, we, sh we know that it should have a pit tag. And if it doesn't, we can calculate the percent tag loss. So it's actually pretty straightforward, straightforward statistical measure. One last thing on like pit tagging is I went down to, um, every year we, we help out with, um, uh, we give a monetary donation to the capital city or not capital city, uh, Milwaukee chapter of Muskie's Inc to basically only go to stocking. I pretty much said like, here, I will donate to you guys, but it has to go back to the fishery. I don't want it to get hung up on any of the other administrative stuff. But I we so we shot a video of it and somebody asked me like, why don't they tag those fish? Now those fish aren't coming from your place. They're coming from Gallon's Fish Farm. I think I pronounced it right. And why, why don't they tag... Why don't they tag those fish? It's a good question. Um, pit tagging muskies, um, other than the fish that we sample in our surveys, is kind of up to the discretion of each local biologist. The kicker with pit tags is they're not super cheap. They run anywhere from about a buck twenty-five a piece to a buck sixty a piece, depending on how many you can order at once. And so, um, many of our fisheries budgets don't take into account purchasing pit tags. So that's where the partnership with a lot of these muskies Inc clubs and, and muskie clubs of Wisconsin um, really helps the department. So for example, I have a local club here in lacrosse, God's country chapter of muskies Inc. They've been really awesome about donating money to me specifically for equipment. So they purchased a bunch of pit tag readers. They purchased pit tags almost annually for me. So I have a bank of pit tags to use to do that. For example, if I were to get fish from gallons, those would for sure get pit tags if they went into any of my waters, because I want to know what happens to those fish as they go um, through their life. But 
the reason those didn't get tagged was because a the biologist there didn't have pit tags, um, which is probably my guess, or or b it wasn't as high a high profile um, or a question that they had at the time. It's impossible for me to speculate. You know what what they were doing over there. Sure. I, was, I mean, I, I we were just asked the question on one, on one of the comments on the video, and I assumed it comes down to dollars and cents basically because if if it didn't, everybody would do it because it just makes sense because you have the access to that much more information. So, right, yeah. I mean, I I feel pretty confident in saying that the 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 biologists in the state of Wisconsin could easily um, pit tag you know <laughs> forty thousand fish a year if we wanted to tag all the fish that we stock, you know, so that number is financially impossible to achieve, but we do get great help from a lot of muskie clubs across the state. So I, I do want to say thanks to those folks who were helping us buy pit tags and other equipment. I would assume that if, um, so if you set out nets in the spring, I know some of the lakes are set up, you know, where I think it's probably a, whatever, there's probably a regular rotation on them, which lakes will get nets set out. I would assume that those, when, if you capture a muskie in those nets in the spring, those would get probably pit tagged then, right? Or not? Absolutely. That's what I was talking about before, where we, we want all of our biologists to, to tag every adult we catch in the state of Wisconsin. Okay. So, so yeah, your lake, um, where your, where your pontoon boat was, uh, or is, or allegedly maybe hopefully it's still there um that lake should have a bunch of fish with pit tags in them well that lake there was on from what i understand it was on the no stock list for a while and then yep i think it did it did it course did it correspond with the 50 inch size limit they had out there or not i don't i don't know all the history on it um i believe i don't think so um i don't recall exactly but i think that was part about 15 years ago we had a study that we um, began, maybe it was 20 years ago now, but it was quite a while ago. What we did is we decided on a, on a number of lakes in Northern Wisconsin, we were going to stop stocking. And then on another number of lake, we were going to reduce the stocking rate basically to measure natural reproduction, because we thought that a lot of these lakes had natural reproduction. Um, so I believe that lake, your lake was part of that study where it went to a zero and we were looking for natural reproduction. Most of those waters that we did that um, did not show some, uh, sufficient natural reproduction for a fishable population. Um, and and I'm pretty sure pelican was part of that. That would make sense. Subsequent to that, um, that biologist in that area, Dave Seibel, he's an anago. Um, he has a trophy management philosophy. So he typically stocks most of his waters at a lower density with the hopes of growing real big fish. Which, I mean, that's good. You know, I think they're typically, I mean, obviously just my two cents. I have no, I have no impact, but I, I would imagine there's guys that will argue both ways. You know, some guys want to have a bunch of them because they want to catch a bunch of fish and other guys want to have big fish. It just depends on where you're at, I guess, in your, in your uh, process of being a musky angler. It seems like as you get older, you want to catch bigger ones. I personally don't really care. I mean, I like big fish, obviously, but... I would probably take a 40 incher over no over, over no fish that day. Um, a lot of guys wouldn't. I know that I have plenty of friends that are. I don't want to say it's 50 incher bust, but they want 45s or bigger. Because um, in Wisconsin, we kind of take we kind of get hit a little bit with the small. You know, we don't have a lot of big fish um, label. I guess is there is there any truth to that or not? 
Well, I think there's some truth to it. I think um, it's kind of a function of, of what we have in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin right now, we have 667 um, classified and, and managed musky waters, musky lakes. Um, there's another 100 river segments that are managed specifically for muskies. That's a crap ton. And most of those waters tend to be small when you compare them to our neighbors to the west in Minnesota. So, you know, Minnesota has somewhere around 100 waters. Um, most their average size is significantly larger than ours. Um, but what's really interesting is when you take all of Wisconsin's musky waters and combine the acreage, it's not too much different than when you combine all of Minnesota's, um, Lake of the Woods excluded. So um, it's, it's really similar, but the number isn't similar. Um, to your size, uh, question, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion about size of fish and, and most certainly I'm not going to disagree that Minnesota, it gets us with that, uh, maximum length of the fish, um, nearly every single time. Part of that's a function of productivity. Part of it's a function of genetic and part of it's function of lake size. Um, but having said all that, there's plenty of really nice fish, um, in Wisconsin, and what we've been seeing from our surveys and angler reports is that we're actually catching more large fish and larger fish every year. Um, personally, I don't have any data to back this up, and this will be one of the only times you ever hear me say something like this without actual data. But I think it's a direct result of uh, the 2012 law to mandate quick strike um, sucker harnesses in Wisconsin. Prior to that, it was a lot of these guys with single hooks, you know, either camping on islands or letting the fish uh, swallow the sucker with that big 10-aught square hook in it. Um, and we know from research that 80% of those fish died. Yeah, it's good that you brought that up because I remember seeing you last fall talk at the musky bash up at the Chippewa Flowage uh, Treelands deal. And when you brought that up, I was like, I was almost shaking my head going like, I can't believe back in the day that 80% of these fish that got hooked off suckers were going to die and how much, like you said, how much of an impact that makes. Because everybody knows in Wisconsin, suckers, I mean, it might be that way in Minnesota now. But for a little while, Minnesota guys kind of looked at it the same. Like, um, they thought it was cheating. And I think I hear more about it now than I did before. But Wisconsin, that's a tradition. And guys will go out there and sit there all day and drink beer and have a couple suckers. And then basically they'd let a fish hit it and take it, let it sit there for 20 minutes and gut hook it and set the hook on it. And they would just cut it and assume it's going to be fine because it swam off. But obviously it's not fine. Right. And, and you know what? Those, those fish do swim off, you know, because it's not immediate mortality. It's not something that happens right away. Um, what ended up happening is those, those big hooks would either um, penetrate the stomach lining or the esophagus, which was guaranteed death. Um, they would never rust out, by the way. Um, which brings me to a, another subject that I really would like to learn more about scientifically is, you know, I see a lot of folks talking about, yeah, I cut the hooks and let her go. And I'm really interested to find out if that has a detrimental effect on, effect on our fish. Now, I realize that there are certain times where you need to cut a hook to save a fish's uh, life in the really short term. But some folks that I know, they, they'll do it when they could just easily pop that hook out. So what I'd like to look at in, in the future, working with some of my colleagues around the, the country is, is to look at some of these, these fish that get hooks cut in their head. 
um, because that's a piece of metal stuck in a fish. And those hooks that we're using, they're not going to rust out anytime soon. It should help hopefully in the future because I would imagine that, I mean, I, I hear of stories that it still still continues, but um, I know less and less of that's going on now than what it ever did before. Sure. One thing that you brought up about our neighbors, Minnesota, is the size of their water. One thing I argue, um, sometimes I guess I argue with my brother-in-law, is he assumes every lake in Wisconsin can hold a 50-incher. And I'm of the theory that, you know, the fish, the fish bowl and the size of the fish, you know, limit that. Do you do you think that every lake in Wisconsin ha- will ho- has a 50 incher, or I'm assuming that it maybe has the potential, but I just don't I don't see it. I think some lakes, you know, some of those smaller lakes, because we have a lot of them up north, and you mentioned it, 600 and some odd lakes and 100 odd rivers, they can't possibly all have 50 inch potential. Is that correct or not? Uh, essentially, you're correct. Um, Jeff, you know, we found that on average, the probability that you're going to grow a 50 inch fish or larger increases dramatically when you get over 2000 acres. I'll say that again, 2000 acres. And when you look at the waters in Wisconsin, (laughs) we we don't have an overwhelming uh, number of 2000 plus acre lakes. Most of our lakes are much smaller than that. In fact, our average size musky lake, when you take all of them into account, is like 800 acres. So that's the average. And while any lake could grow a 50-inch fish, um, I can assure you that that fish will be a female, and that fish most likely would be uh, very, very old. Um, they're unlikely to do so. Not that there's anything wrong with 48 inch fish. Cause I would assume, you know, most of these lakes would probably top out at between 45 and 48, which is still a really nice fish in my opinion. Sure. And, and we, I don't have uh, specific data on those size fish cause most people just care about 50 inch fish, but um, yeah, you're, you're more likely to, to catch some of those fish. Now I, I'm not saying that all lakes cannot produce a 50 inch fish because, you know, I know several really small lakes that have some really giant fish in them. Um, I can't ever remember the names of those lakes, but uh, I know that they're there. Uh, but on average, if you're looking for a big fish, you know, I tell everybody you want to go to big water. It's, it is the fish bowl syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, up by me, I don't need, hardly even know if there's many lakes that would qualify for your 2000 acres. The one I'm on would probably be it, but. Yeah, I mean, if and if I was looking for the biggest fish around, people always ask me like, "Isn't that a really good musky lake?" I'm like, "Well, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for to catch a musky, probably not. If you're looking for a big fish in northern Wisconsin, it's probably one of your better shots at a 50, because I know for sure there definitely sure. are 50s in that lake. Um, but it, you can always just point back to there's a they have a tournament at a Lakeview Bar in second week in September. It's gotten the numbers have gotten better, which corresponds to the stocking because you see a lot of a lot of 35 to 38s showing up now in that tournament. But prior to that, you would literally have it would fill up the tournament would fill up because if you caught a 50 incher, they'd give you like the the winner was a toughy boat, and then if you caught a 50 incher on a Suic, you got like ten thousand dollar bonus. So you'd get 125 boats on there, and it was a cheap tournament, um, and it was a it was a well run. It still is a well run tournament, and it still is cheap. But um, they, the catch, the catch uh, success out there was horrible. I mean, you'd literally have 125 boats out there with two anglers in each boat, and you'd be lucky if seven fish got registered for the day. That's 
that's tough fishing. Yeah, that was a direct result of the density issue that, you know, was not there as a result of the lack of stocking, right? Oh, 100%. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, in some of these lakes, they used to have really good natural reproduction and, and create a fishable population for folks. Um, you know, natural reproduction isn't a stable thing through time. A lot of times it changes, and from year to year it changes. So, you know, if you have several years of bad reproduction on Anar Lake, sorry, natural reproduction, reproduction lake, you know, you could be out of luck for 10 years. So, yeah, I mean, in Wisconsin, that's the cool thing is, right, we have – you know, not all our lakes are going to produce 50 inch fish, but there are lakes that you can go to and catch, you know, 10 fish in a day. We have a lot of variety and, and we manage it that way on purpose. We know, you know, every day we're finding out more about these fish, right? So we're um, putting the best science forward on management of these fish and we want to have opportunities for everybody. I'm still just happy to hear that there's a hundred rivers in Wisconsin that are managed for muskies. That means that jet boat can get all sorts of use. It's going to be awesome. What, what, no, you're not allowed on any of those though. Those are hundred river segments, hundred river segments, not a hundred rivers. Oh, hundred river segments. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. I can still go to those. That's fine. No, no, you can't. <laughs> I've been doing it since 2009 and I've seen too many people the last few years. So it'd be all right with me if they just could go somewhere else. Good to know. Well, uh, there's plenty of people on green Bay. You don't have to worry about them going there. Um, <laughs> Speaking of Green Bay, let's touch on that one last time because if you talk to anyone in the state and in, anyone that you know is into muskies, Green Bay is essentially the crown jewel of Wisconsin. I think we can all agree on that. Absolutely. Can you can you kind of tell me about the, what I think is gonna what I think is gonna happen in the future of Green Bay? Is I think right now you have an overabundance of fifty inch fish between fifty and fifty seven, with not as many you know leading coming behind it, and I think there's gonna be some lean times in Green Bay. Is that what research tells you? Just because I know for, you know, whatever it was, it was whenever they found VHS, was that 2006 or 2008? It was one of those two. So it missed how many year classes? Six? Is that right? Uh, I wanted to say 2007 was the VHS year, but I, I don't recall exactly. So um, what, what ended up happening is there were some, some years where there was very few fish stocked into Green Bay. Um, and that, that's the, that's the gap you're seeing of those fish, uh, smaller than those, you know, those big giant females that are left. So what happened out on green Bay from the get go was that when we first put fish into that system and it happens, um, nearly everywhere you stock fish that they haven't been, um, established for a long time, they grow super fast and they tend not to live very long. So when we first started the rehabilitation program on Green Bay, those fish grew like crazy. And what happened is, is fisheries guys call that a burnout. They, they grow for like 10 or 12 years. They get to be 52, 53, 54, and they were gone. And so we had uh, fish that generally didn't live very long, but grew super fast out there because they were filling a niche that had not been filled by a big predator. So there was all kinds of food that they had not eaten. Um, once these population gets established, that growth will slow down a little bit. And then we tend to get fish that live a little bit longer. Um, what happened out there was during those times where it started to slow down, we had some issues with stocking where we couldn't provide as many fish as we'd like to. Um, I don't recall the years off the top of my head when that was, then you compound that with VHS, um, which may or may not have killed some of the fish out there. We're not quite sure. 
Um, we know it killed some, we don't know how many, um, we're still recovering from that, um, today. However, with the current arrangement we have with Michigan, um, we have been able to get the number of fish that we, well, let me back up. We'll never be able to get the number of fish we want to stock out there just because it's so big, but we're doing, we're meeting our goals at this point. And so you are very quickly going to see some of those gaps filled in with smaller, younger fish. In fact, when I fish out there, excuse me, when I combat fish out there, the only fish I catch are 30 inches. So that should maybe make you feel better that there are some younger fish out there coming back. I think it's interesting, Jordan, that you brought up, you know, those initial stockings um, definitely seem to be the, the highest speed growth rate, you know, when you have the forage base and what have you. And I know a lot of those lakes here in Minnesota were affected that way originally as well. It happens everywhere, you know, everywhere and with every species, right? So like, for example, if you had a big reservoir and you drained it down to the river channel and it was there for a year or two, and then you filled it back up, the fish in that reservoir would grow super fast for like the next 10 years. And then after that, they'll go back to the normal baseline. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad. It just is what it is. Right. And ideally, you know, everybody really when I, that I talked to was concerned about, you know, Green Bay is, is that going to be the place for the next world record? And I, you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say that, um, based on science, because in order to get to world record proportions, which is whatever you want to believe it is, um, let's just say it's over 60 inch fish, right? Um, you need to have a fish that grows at a moderate pace for a really long time. So you don't want a fish that grows super fast because they don't, they don't live long enough to get to that world record proportion. And, and besides all that, you need to have a female because muskies have sexually dimorphic growth. Males generally don't get very large. Um, in Wisconsin, they generally don't get over 42 inches. Um, in Minnesota, they get a little bit bigger from some of the guys that I talked to over there that I know. Um, but you know, the big fish that we want are all girls. No doubt. No doubt. It seems like uh, that's a huge key. Um, let me ask you, can we slip more into the the spawning side of things and what you're seeing in the last couple of years? It seems like our, our fish start to spawn. We end up getting cold and it kind of makes things uh, slow down or possibly even just completely quit for maybe a week, two weeks. Um, are you seeing that in Wisconsin? Because I feel that that's what, it's happened over here in Minnesota the last couple of years, actually. Yeah. You know, there's in, in fisheries, we have this saying it's, there's only one thing I can guarantee is that's that reproduction is highly variable. Um, right. So, uh, when you think about fish spawning or musky spawning, you, you want to think about it, not as a discrete day. You want to think about it as a, a, a continuous group of days. Um, sometimes it can be as much as a month long. Um, typically if you had, you know, gradual warm up, steady temperatures, it'll all happen in, in a couple weeks. But when you have variations in temperature, you can have fish that are in, um, you know, beginning the process or done with the process, um, at multiple different stages throughout, throughout that variation in temperature. So, um, when you have these crazy temperatures where it gets warm quick and the ice goes away and the water gets warm and maybe a few fish go in there and say, oh, I got to do this and they go do it. And then it gets cold and the other ones are like, well, I'm not really ready. Um, 
it's dictated by water temperature, day length, and, and environment. Um, so, for example, if a muskie goes and spawns and they lay their eggs on the bottom of the lake and they're fertilized and the temperature's gradual and increasing through time, those eggs typically hatch in about 7 to 14 days. So, um, if the temperature goes down, it takes longer to hatch and there is a point at which they will not hatch. So if it goes down for too long, those eggs just end up dying or the fry, once they do hatch, the environment's too cold so they don't survive. Um, muskies aren't super good at reproduction. <laughs> they're, they are not a, a largemouth bass and, and they don't protect their young and, and they, their eggs are interesting in that they're not adhesive like a northern pike's eggs. So they sit on the bottom and if the bottom's habitat is not oxygenated, they don't survive. So they have a lot of things stacked against them um, environmentally and, and just, you know, you know, evolutionary issues. So it's, it's tough to be a muskie if you want to make more muskies. It sounds like it. That's, uh, that's some interesting points that I guess some of that I wasn't aware of. Um, going along with the same topic, uh, I, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but one of the things that, uh, whether it be hearsay or what it might be, but we kind of felt like a lot of the females, they came in, they got ready to spawn, cold front. It shut it down. They came back in, it warmed up, they're going to try to spawn again, cold front. They kind of like pushed back out. Is there a time where some of these females don't drop their eggs at all? And you hear the different rumors that these fish are possibly absorbing their eggs. Can you speak on something like that, Jordan? I, I can a little bit. I, I don't have a ton of confidence doing so. And and most fish, you know, they're they have two things to do in life. They they make more fish and they eat. Like those are the only two things fish do. Right. All of them. Right. I guess they avoid being eaten too, but not so much with muskies. So, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to believe that there's a significant number of females that wouldn't drop their eggs under whatever condition. However, it is possible. Um, if they were not to drop their eggs, they would be able to th theoretically um, reabsorb those eggs and use that energy that they put into making them. But, uh, you know, the other thing that we hear sometimes is once the female gets so old, she won't reproduce. And, and I don't think that has much uh, truth in it at all. Um, they'll continue to produce eggs as long as they're physically able to do so. And that, that's, that's their, they're like a, a robot in that sense and that they do the same thing every year. They should release those eggs regardless um, because perpetuation of the species doesn't work when you don't put your eggs on the bottom of the lake. Makes total sense. I just, right. Uh, I, I think you answered some of the questions that I've had for probably eight years or better. Because um, we really were looking at a couple of years where, you know, we just weren't seeing the big fish. And it, it was really strange. And it was one of those years where I felt like they really didn't get to do their normal spawning process. Um, sure. They got drug out for so long. And... So, I mean, that was a theory that we, you know, several of us thought um, and heard. Like I said, there were more rumors than anything. Um, but to be able to have the the biology side of it, it, it seems important to me. So I appreciate yeah, that answer. You know, behavior, behavior, you know, as anglers, we tend to view them a little different than scientists do. Um, so, 
you know, the behavior of a muskie from year to year, we like to think is always going to be the same, right? So these fish are going to do the same thing every year. They're going to go spawn, then they're going to go out over open water and chomp on some stuff, and and then they're going to go to the weeds, and then they're going to go to the you know steep steep drop offs in the fall. Um, I, I was able in my graduate research to follow 36 muskies every single day for two years, and the amount of information that I have about those 36 fish is um, incredible and helps me catch fish no matter where I'm at. So, you know, when I, when I hear you tell me that, you know, a few years ago, the fish weren't there, they weren't doing what you expected them to do. My answer to you is that they found something else to eat, right? I'm I'm not talking so much about they weren't where they should be for eating. I'm talking about the spawning process, you know, okay. There's certain uh, parts of the lake that I know the fish are spawning in and have for forever. You know what I mean? Okay. Sure, sure. Okay, I guess I misunderstood. Yeah, I I would see them come in, and all of a sudden we'd have a cold front, and then they'd disappear. And and I've seen it happen multiple times. And and so then, I, you know, that's when I started wondering, you know, what are these fish doing? When when do they finally dump their eggs? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At some point they have to, or do they retain them? And that... That was my true question in it. Yeah, my, my guess is what's happening in that instance, Brad, and when you have these highly variable temperatures, rather than just hanging out in that shallow water where the water's warming up gradually and they like that, they're coming in at night, they're dropping their eggs, and then they're out of there. Sure. Because the conditions in that area aren't what they want to be in. They want to be in the warmest area, and they want that metabolism to start cranking up. But, you know, genetically, they're programmed to drop those eggs. So my guess is that amount of time they spend shallow in the spawning area is going to be less under those highly variable conditions. And, and again, that's just an educated guess based on, on behaviors that I've observed. Oh, I totally appreciate those answers because, you know, I, I get it. I mean, <laughs> they're not going to do, like you already said, they're not going to do the same thing every stinking year, you know, and. And, and we can relate that to where the ciscos are, the bait fish, or maybe you don't have a cisco like maybe it's perch, maybe it's suckers. You know, it's, there's so many variables in this whole game of musky fishing, and uh, the science side of it is, is very intriguing to me, and I think it should be to most anglers. So it's yeah, nice having somebody with your background to be able to speak about it. Well, I appreciate that, and, you know, that's – that's what I try to do when I write in Muskie Hunter magazine too, you know. I mean, that's the whole premise when I when I talked to Steve and Jim about it in 2006 when I started doing it. Um, you know, my my idea was, hey, there's all this science out there and I'm using it to catch muskies. Uh I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the angling community and I said I'd like to just throw some stuff at them. I don't want to try to tell them what to think. I just want to ask them if they'd want to. Well, since you're since you're still going strong after it from 2006 to now, I mean, clearly, clearly, guys must want to know the information. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I don't know, or they just need pages filled. I'm not quite sure. I guess there's that option too. <laughs> it's that it's that massive paycheck you get for writing those articles. Yeah, which is zero dollars. <laughs> I have not received payment for any of the articles I've written, just for the record. <laughs> I'm just giving you crap. <laughs> Make sure they pimp your YouTube channel in there then next time. That's that's mostly because uh, as a as an employee of the state, I cannot receive payment for that. So, <laughs> right. 
I'm not doing it out of the goodness of my heart, but I do feel like it's important to get that information out there. And, you know, um, there's a lot of awesome projects that can help guys catch fish. There's a lot of awesome research out there that can help them. And I mean, it helps me every day I'm out there. So where is that research available? And maybe you can share kind of what you're talking about there. You know, what, what's on your mind at this point? Some of that research that could help these anglers. Well, I did mention a little bit uh, right now, the hot topic is hot water, right? So um, that upcoming research with these other states, I think that could really, you know, as far as I'll be concerned, it'll put it to bed if we, if we can get this to happen. Um, Cause we'll find out where the threshold is um, for, you know, hooking mortality in, in warmer water temperatures. Um, that's a really important one. I, I like doing any sort of movement. That's always interest, interesting for people to hear about. They can equate that stuff to their home body, um, home water bodies really easily. Um, any behavioral stuff, um, you know, tracking studies are always great to do in the magazine. Uh, I just got done writing one and now it's slipping my mind what I wrote about. And to be honest with you, after whatever, 13, 14 years now, I don't even remember what I wrote about for most of them. So there, there's a lot of opportunities out there to write articles for sure. Well, I, I don't disagree, but is there some research uh, that's available on a website other than the magazine, I guess, is what I'm saying? Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. I, I misunderstood. I apologize. Yeah, um, you know, some of the articles are going to be available for free, um, and the Google machine is as good a inf um, way to get at those as any other way. So you just type in musky research or whatever musky topic you think you're interested in, you can get some of those articles um, for free. There are also some, the American Fishery Society has journals that they publish. Um, my master's research was published in that in 2006, um, talked about movement of muskies in the Manitowish chain of lakes. Um, you know, those you may have to pay for access to the articles. Um, most scientists will provide people with a copy, a PDF of their article. Um, so you don't have to pay, but you need to get the information on who to, who to contact. So, you know, first Google machine, find out who wrote the article, find out where that person works, get their email, um, politely ask if you can read it. And most often they're going to send you a copy of it. So it's readily available. Um, the only thing that might be a little tricky for folks is scientific writing and reading of that writing is, is can be a little bit different. Um, so if they have questions, make sure they, they ask the author or someone who can maybe decipher some of that stuff. Right. Does, does the Wisconsin DNR provide any of these studies that might reference to some of that? We work cooperatively with uh, UW Stevens Point Fisheries Research uh, folks there. So most of the Wisconsin DNR research questions goes through point. Um, we have done some stuff through other universities as well, but most of it goes through Stevens point. So all their research will be there. The Wisconsin cooperative cooperative fisheries unit at UWSP. You can get those that's headed up by Dan Iserman. Um, he actually used to work in Minnesota a little while too. So um, yeah, you, you can get a hold of him. We have geneticists over there, Wes Larson. Um, we have some other really, really brilliant folks over there. Dan Demkowski, Dr. Josh Robbie, and Justin Vandii. So I guess the only question I have left then is, where is this eight muskies per acre? Which lake, Where? which county do I got to find it in Wisconsin? Ah, uh, that's the $10 million question. Well, 
uh, I'll do that and get a plug for the uh, lure company that I'm pro staff on. Is it's Lake X, of course. Of course. Um, and then when I usually go there, I I catch them on TNA tackle angry dra- angry dragons. But uh, you could only do it on that. That's it. No, I'm just kidding, Jeff. That lake doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I um I kind of figured we're not in Indiana with Lake Webster. I mean, I, honestly though, like well, and Webster's not like that anymore either. No, but I heard it's coming back to that, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's back on that way, you know, on that in that uh, that trend. Well, you know, we used to have Lake Winger, I think, had seven adults per acre at one point, um, and some other lakes in northern Wisconsin had a real high density. Um, most most often, what happened there is we had really significant natural reproduction that we didn't plan on, and then we stocked fish on top of them, and there was fish everywhere. That's usually not a great situation unless you want to catch 10, 30 inches in a day. Which some people might be interested in, you know, if once, you, yeah, yeah. once you get to a certain level, you're probably not usually anymore. Right. What's that? There's four, four stages of the fisherman. There's the, uh, I just want to catch one stage. And then once you've caught one, you just want to catch a whole bunch of them. And then stage three is I just want to catch a real big one. And then stage four, which is where I live is like, I'm not even mad at them. I just like to be an out there. I mean, that's probably actually pretty accurate. I think that's very accurate. Um, and, it, and it's fun to be able to watch other people in your boat catch them, you know? Somebody Absolutely. Maybe new to the sport or maybe it's a youth. Um, and, and it's really fun ruining somebody else's life by getting them their first muskie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember those days. It's been all downhill since. I find it really interesting, though. You know, you've said this a couple times tonight, and that being – you know, when you have kind of that overpopulation that it really seems to slow down and stunt that growth. Um, What is that number? I mean, are you talking like say a two fish to an acre or three fish or one fish to an acre? You know what I mean? Where's that number? Do you you have a kind of a, a written stage on that? That's a great question, Brad, uh, Brad, and I'm glad you asked that. Um, what we found from our research in Wisconsin, that the sweet spot for the combination of, of a, a fishable population, we're going to have a reasonable um, chance to catch one, and also the chance of catching a pretty significant fish is somewhere between 0.25 and 0.5 fish per acre, so a half of a fish per acre, um, again, again, in our larger waters. So, um, when you start getting that one fish per acre, we don't, muskies don't technically stunt like the word that gets used with bluegills and and whatever. Um, it's, it's, we call it density dependent growth. It's not drastically different than stunting, but stunting is a little bit different process. Um, what tends to happen is when you have a lot of mouths of the same size, they're feeding on the same prey. And then there's actually a prey limitation. Of, of available prey for those fish. So they have to work harder to get enough food to grow. Um, and then usually in conjunction with that, we have a relatively small system where they don't have the huge potential to grow big anyways. So you won't see, um, you know, Lake Vermilion in Northern Minnesota, no matter how many fish you stock in there, you wouldn't see this density dependent growth because of its, it's how vast it is. And I guess I shouldn't say no matter how many you stock, like if you stocked 10 fish per acre annually for, you know, 20 years, yes, that would be, you'd, you'd have that instance there too. Well, one question on stocking that I have, and I've had people ask me is, so 
every fall, let's just say fall, typically that's when the DNR does all their stocking is fall, correct? Uh, yes, we, we, um, get a fall product that, that the muskie team acts, asks their hatcheries to produce, um, a, on average an 11 inch fish, typically the first or second week of September. So in our hatcheries, we get fish, let's just say by the first of May on average. And by the first of September, they're 11 inches or more. So yeah, we, we ask for fall fingerlings. We call those. Um, and if they stay there till the first week in October, they're more like 14 inches. So they're, they're pretty incredible. What's the, uh, what's the mortality rate of them? Um, say to make it to adulthood, uh, let's you, you stock a hundred of them in a muskie in a lake. That's 200 acres, which is about what the DNR typically stocks at. How, how many, how many of those, what's the potential for them to become adults? How many of them are even going to make it through the winter? Do you, do you know the like do you have an idea on that on those rates? We I got an idea, but it's uh it's highly variable based on environment um and also fish community. Um habitat plays a role. Um you know, anywhere from 5 to 20%, I would say. I feel I feel pretty confident. I mean, that's a wide range, but um so maybe 20 fish out of 100 if you had really good survival, one of the, one of the biggest um, problems with stocking muskies, especially when the water's warm is largemouth bass. Um, if you have a really high population of big largemouth bass, um, they eat those sausages up real quick in the fall. Stupid bass. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're fish too. Yeah. W- what we try to do is we find the lakes that, you know, each lake has a sweet spot as far as stocking goes. And, and we continually learn more and more when we stock fish and then see these fish coming out the other end. So we're constantly tweaking when we're stocking the size that stocking and the number we stock into our lakes to maximize that potential. Would we like it to be higher than that? Um, yes. Is it? I'm sure it is in some situations, but I wouldn't feel comfortable, um, you know, saying anything more than five to 20%. On that topic, if, if you overwinter them, like the ones we stocked this past spring were, I'd say between 14 and 15 inches. Do, I mean, does the percentage increase that much where it's worth overwintering them? I know you can't, I know the DNR specifically can't overwinter them because of the costs associated with feeding the things over the winter. Um, it, it, is the success that much higher if they're three, four inches bigger or not? Well, yes, it is higher. But the trade-off is, like you mentioned, all that food, we have to feed them all winter. And also that they don't grow as well in the winter. So, yeah, it might take them five months to grow three inches, where if we kept them till end of November, they would probably put on that three inches anyways. So, actually, fish in the hatchery over winter don't really grow that well. Um, They obtain most of their growth up until the fall, you know, up until, like, December, and then they really quit growing for the rest of the year. So there is a lot of costs associated with it, with it. And then also over winter, you do have mortality every day. These fish are in raceways or ponds. There is mortality happening. So you end up with fewer fish, um, in situations where you want the absolute biggest product and they're super valuable, IE green Bay. Um, we routinely over winter fish. Um, those fish are either got stocked last week or they're getting ready to get stocked soon. And those things are, they're incredible. They're like 18 inches long and they got muscles on top of muscles. So those fish should do really well. 
Um, but that's our, that's our baby, right? That's our reclamation project. That's really important. Now the, those fish aren't cheap. Um, so there is a trade-off between the amount of money you spend and, and the product you get out. Right. Yeah. I, I, speaking on the mortality end of it, I don't remember what it was, what the number the Milwaukee chapter wanted was, but it wasn't anywhere near the quota because we had a harsh winter and they just had too much loss. So when they started, you know, pulling nets out of the ponds, they just didn't have nearly the amount of fish that they wanted to have. So obviously that is, that's definitely an issue too. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, keeping them in a pond longer is that's, you know, there's stuff can happen every day. That's not good. I'd rather have the trade off of, you know, 11 inch fish that I make sure get, get stocked rather than, um, overwintering. And in most situations, I mean, if I had unlimited money, I'd overwinter every one. And if I was king of king of the world, then we'd only raise muskies and we wouldn't raise walleyes, but I'm not. So I'm sure there's a lot of walleye guys that are pretty happy about that. Yeah, they, they are, you know, in Wisconsin, that's still, that's still the king in Wisconsin. How can that be since you your state fish is the muskie? That's a great question. I'll work on it. <laughs> I got about 20 more years, Brad, and then I'm then I'm going to ride off in the sunset. So if I don't know how to fix by then, you'll have to ask somebody else. <laughs> I, I think it's intriguing, Jordan, that uh, the studies that you've been involved in and the studies that you are pertinent to um, – and how you can mix that into your, your own angling experience. I think it's good stuff. And, and then well through musky hunter articles and such. Um, it's pretty cool that you're able to do that. Well, I appreciate that. And that's, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you think that's working because that was my goal in the first place. So good stuff. Well, I guess with that being said, should we start wrapping this one up, Brad? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if, if, we see the uh, the public is looking for more. We can always come back to this, and I, I think we should and we will. You know, as time progresses, uh, Jordan's a great speaker and does a lot of neat things. So definitely, um, we I don't know how close we are. We we came close to our record now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we didn't. We crushed a record with the last one. I don't think we're ever going to top that. It went over two hours. Yeah. Oh. That one was pretty crazy, but uh, this one, would we get in on this one? Hour and a half. Yeah, that's pretty solid, though. That yeah, was weak. That was weak. That was All weeks. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe next time we'll bring more to the table. Well, how about this? Once we get the list, I can jump on Brad's boat, and we can answer all the questions while we troll around. <laughs> yeah, that would probably make the most sense. Five, five, six hours. That should do it. That sounds good. I like that idea. You want to meet in the boardroom? That's Brad's boat. <laughs> oh, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to see that someday. <laughs> or either that, or I could take Jet for a, uh, Jeff for a jet boat ride because he'll never have his own. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. What what are you running, Jordan, for a jet boat? I got a, a Lumacraft sixteen fifty tunnel hull with a sixty forty Yamaha jet. Okay. Cool. So if I had to do it, I built it all from scratch by myself. So if I had to do it over again, I think I'd forego the tunnel. Um, I, I lose a little bit. This is a whole other. This is a whole other topic, by the way. But um, I lose. I lose a little bit by getting some dirty water in that thing. So um, it's awesome, though. I can go through less than three inches of water. That's incredible. That's some good stuff. I've I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of that, um, but I was in a river pro and. 
it's amazing what those boats can go through. So I get those it. even more so. Yeah, those are crazy. Uh, and the speeds that you're doing it in, um, it's totally amazing. And there's some pretty good fishing opportunities in that skinny water. Yeah, I'm not such a fan of that. You know, 40, 50 mile an hour stuff on a river. I'm I'm happy going 22 in mine and and uh, not killing canoers or myself hitting a rock. So. <laughs> Call me old, I guess. I can totally understand that. Um, it's a hair-rising uh, ride. There's no doubt about that. You hang on pretty tight. <laughs> Pucker factors high. Exactly. Uh, good stuff. Well, we'll talk more about those jet boats at some point, I'm sure, because I think Jeff's finally going to – he's going to have to get it done. He's talked about it for too long. He's got to buy a new trailer now. Well, the peer pressure is going to be too much. <laughs> Yeah, what Carrie said, I gotta get a new I gotta get a new uh show trailer first. That's probably more important. Well it's, it's a good excuse to buy a bigger one, Jeff. Yeah, I know. I thought about or that too. Or a smaller one but... and then save some of the insurance money for a jet boat. Right. We could just not do shows anymore, sell the trailer completely, and I got probably a good chunk of money on the jet boat. See, now you're talking, Carrie. I just heard where the brains of this operation is. That's what I was just gonna say. I'm like, man, why didn't I think of this myself? <laughs> just ask Carrie. That's that's all you need to do. That's the best <laughs> thing I heard out of you on this podcast in weeks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, this we got to be done now after that one. You know, I Carrie talks a lot on these podcasts, but you know, I think she gets edited out. You think so? No, Carrie doesn't talk a lot on these podcasts. <laughs> Maybe you should talk more. Uh, usually when she talks, I actually have to bump up the volume. No, you know what? I like. I actually like listening. I talk when I feel I have something valid. But Brad and I just talk stupid all the time. <laughs> I like to take it all in and learn something. Uh, that's just typical of me. All right. With that said, we, let's wrap this up. This is going nowhere now. Yeah, Jordan, why don't you, uh, if you're okay with giving out your email, why don't you give that out if people, if you want to even take questions. If you don't, we'll just bring them to us and we can bring them to you if you don't want to be interrupted or I'm sure you have a real job you got to get done. No, I'd be happy to give it out with the caveat that, uh, you know, I will do my best to answer you in a prompt manner, but I am going to Lake of the Woods soon and I may, it may take a little while to get back, but I will answer everybody's email. Um, my email is my first name, J O R D A N dot my last name, W E E K S at W I dot G O V is in government. So again, it's J O R D A N dot W E E K S at W I dot G O V. Perfect. And Brad, Kerry, want you guys sign off for Musky Mayhem Tackle? Yeah, if you're interested in looking at any of our product, you can definitely find us at muskymayhemtackle.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook for social media and easily contacted through all three of those avenues. Hey, Jordan, why don't you quick drop your YouTube channel again? That's Biological Angler, Angler Productions. It's kind of a tongue twister. Perfect. And for Team Rhino Outdoors, you can find Team Rhino Outdoors at www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. And we have a bunch of custom stuff, bunch of stock stuff, whole pile of stuff um, shipping every day. If you want, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, which I do once in a while. You can find us on Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel. We put out new content weekly at this point of the season. Generally, it runs through the end of the year. This year, it might run a little longer because I think we're already good through like mid-November. I think we have like 31 fish on film, so things are going well that way. 
um, for Backlash Podcast. You can find us, you can email us at backlashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and you can find us on Facebook. If you want to listen to our podcast, if you got it once and you want to try to find it again, just go back to where you found it the first time. But otherwise, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and there's probably one or two other ones I missed, but that's pretty much wraps it up. Um, I think with that being said, thanks for coming out tonight, Jordan. We really appreciate you bringing a bunch of information to us. Hopefully, we can have you back on again sometime. I'm sure that we probably will because I don't see why we wouldn't. Um, so thank you all for coming out tonight. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. No, thank you, Jordan. It was great. Man. Good luck fishing. Have a good night. Yep, everybody have a great night and good fishing.